Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Again, we thank you for this beautiful day. This is the day that you have made, and we are rejoicing, and we are being glad in it. We are rejoicing and being glad in it because you are King. You are our Savior. You are our Father. You are our brother. You are all that we need. You are our anchor. You are our foundation, like we talked about last week. Lord, thank you for creating us, for giving us your word that, that is filled with your instruction and your promises and your truth, that we can cling to it. Lord, I pray that if we walked in here with anything that's distracting us, I pray that you would remove that from our hearts and minds, knock back the birds of distraction, that we may just be one with you and, and hear what you have for us in your word and make it a real part of our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back at the beginning of September, Amazon released its list of most sought-after gifts for this 2020 Christmas season. Don't tell me it's too early. It's already mid-November. Uh, most sought-after gifts for this 2020 Christmas season. So this isn't irrelevant right now. But as I looked through it, I thought to myself, wait a second, some of these are not new on this list. They're just, uh, they're a little bit different, but some of these are just really updated versions of toys and games I had 30 years ago. One of the gifts on the 2020 list is the Frozen 2 version of Don't Break the Ice. This is the version I had from the 80s. Anybody recognize that one? <laughs> 2021 looks a little less dated, I think. Next up is this slimy sand. This was the version I had in 1992. GAC. Remember that? Nickelodeon GAC? One of Nickelodeon's flagship toys in the early 90s. And with this last one, 2020 didn't even try. All right? Everyone here is going to recognize this. All 2020 did for this is it just stole this from all the way back in 1967. That's on the list for most sought after toys for 2020. Light bright. I had the 80s, early 90s version. That's the only chip. Look, look on, on that, though. Bigger, brighter screen. That's the only cha change they can make for 2020. That's it. Bigger, brighter screen. These are just a few of what the most sought-after toys for the 2020 Christmas season will be, according to Amazon, anyways. And what we'll be talking about this morning, there is something that someone receives that they have been yearning for their entire lives. Who is this person, and what do they finally receive after years of searching? And how does this impact and transform our lives now? The parable we're looking at this morning, like many others we've covered, doesn't really start with Jesus beginning the story. It actually starts four verses before, with an odd experience that happens. And then this experience carries through this parable and goes for another seven verses after this parable. In other words, the story that Jesus tells that we're looking at today is nestled within the context of an overarching event, and that event bookends this story. You'll see what I mean. 
This odd event starts in verse 36. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Luke 36 or look it up with your favorite Bible app. I'm going to summarize this first half of this event, but I want you to skim the verses to follow along here. There's a particular Pharisee named Simon. Simon kept badgering Jesus to come join him for dinner at his house. It wasn't all that uncommon for a rabbi or Jewish teacher to be invited to a Pharisee's house. In fact, those would be the most honored guests for Pharisees to invite over for dinner. Remember, the Pharisees were all about popularity. So to have a rabbi come join you for dinner was like asking a celebrity to dinner and them actually showing up. If I invited George Clooney or Brad Pitt over for dinner, they're not coming. But in this context, the, Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus, who in that day was a celebrity, and he actually showed up. But in this case, with this particular Pharisee named Simon, this wasn't just a dinner invite. This wasn't just to find out how Jesus is doing and, and, and all that. It wasn't even an invite to boast Simon's popularity in the community. It wasn't just a dinner invite to a regular old rabbi because the Pharisees didn't see Jesus as a regular old rabbi. They'd already had a few run-ins with Jesus, as recorded for us in Luke. The Pharisees had already accused Jesus of blasphemy halfway through chapter 5, questioned why Jesus would associate with sinners and tax collectors later on in chapter 5, accused Jesus of not following the Mosaic law at the beginning of chapter 6, and then accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath law right after that in chapter 6. They've already had some run-ins with this particular rabbi. So the Pharisees have already done a decent amount of leveling accusations at Jesus, and every single time Jesus gives them a response that renders them speechless. Speechless. So when Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner, he has an ulterior motive. When he invites Jesus to dinner, he has an ulterior motive. He's only inviting Jesus over so he has home field advantage at trying to trip Jesus up. They've tried everything else. Nothing else has worked. Let's try home field advantage and try to trip him up there. Home field advantage doesn't mean all that much during sports games right now because in a lot of stadiums, the same amount of fans are present to cheer on both teams. None. Okay. But Simon is not adding fake crowd noise to his dinner party. He's wielding the full power of his home field advantage. Jesus is not woefully ignorant, though. He knows exactly what's going on, but he goes anyway. He shows up as any dinner guest would and goes to sit at the table. Again, it was not uncommon in Jesus' day for a rabbi to be invited to dinner at someone's house, and it was customary also that anyone from the community could just drop by, could just drop in to listen to that rabbi's teaching. So it wasn't uncommon that the woman we come to next was there in the first place. But what happens next was pretty uncommon. 
Like I just referenced, there was this woman who came in and stood in the shadows behind Jesus, as was customary for uninvited guests who dropped in to listen to the teaching. This woman is described in verse 37 as one who everyone in the community understood, recognized, and viewed as a sinner. Because of the obvious of her sin, that it was well known in the community, she was most likely a prostitute. In first century Palestine, most meals, especially banquets in a guest's honor, took place at low tables, as you see here. And guests, guests would sit or recline on the floor around this table. All the guests would then have sat or leaned on cushions on the floor around the table. At this point, as verse 36 tells us, Jesus is reclining at the table. He's gonna, he looked like the guy that's dressed in orange here with the blue, blue thing wrapped around his head there. You see him right in the foreground? All right. Jesus, the way that Jesus is described as being at this table is most likely how that guy is, is at the table there. He's reclining at the table. So his left arm would have been resting on the table like we see there with, the, uh, with that guy, or his right arm. And his feet would have been facing away from the table, face, facing away from the table just like that guy in the orange is, back towards the rest of the room, and back towards the back of the room, and back towards the shadows, and back towards who? That woman. This woman must have positioned herself directly behind Jesus, as verse 37 and verse 38 tell us. So if you can picture all of this, this woman brought a box made out of alabaster. An alabaster box was a container made out of gypsum, which is a type of translucent rock that is carved into all kinds of works of art. In this time period, alabaster boxes were what you held and stored perfume in. That's just what you held and stored perfume in in those days. She's standing behind Jesus, if you can picture this, listening to him teach, and then all of a sudden, she starts weeping uncontrollably. She starts weeping uncontrollably. And this is why it's important for us to understand how Jesus is, is reclining at the table here. Because of her close proximity to Jesus' feet, where did her tears start falling onto? His feet her tears start falling onto his feet. She then opens a container of her perfume and anoints his feet with it, pours it over his feet, along with the tears that are already on them, while wiping his feet with her hair. That's the odd, strange experience that was pretty uncommon. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, yes, perfume was expensive. So for this woman to use this perfume on Jesus, yes, it would have been a financial sacrifice for her. And that's usually where a lot of people's interpretation of this ends, that look at the perfume she used, that was expensive, that was a sacrifice for her. But here's the thing, yes, that's true. Here's the thing. What was the occupation of this woman? A prostitute, right? So more than a financial asset for this woman, this perfume that she anoints Jesus with was used for her occupation. It was an occupational tool. That's what it was associated with, that perfume. <laughs> Imagine being there. What would, your, what would be running through your mind right now? 
This is just downright scandalous at this point, isn't it? And it would have been seen as extremely scandalous by everyone in that house, as well as everyone who would no doubt find out by way of the gossip train. But this woman didn't care. And as we will see, Jesus sees her spiritual condition as more important than what's going on here. And her spiritual condition is revealed in what she does. I don't know if anyone else there really understood what was going on. They probably didn't. I'm sure they just saw what was, the, what was on the surface. What in the world is going on right now? And how can Jesus let this be happening to him? We're sure Simon certainly didn't know what was going on. Because he says in verse 39, if this guy were really a prophet, he'd be able to surmise that the woman who's doing all this to him right now is a notorious prostitute. Even if, Jesus, even if Simon didn't consider Jesus to be, at the very least, a prophet, in his mind, Jesus still should have known what type of person this woman was, even by simple observation. And here's why. In Jesus' day and culture, women who were respectable and religious were usually married pretty early on in their adult life. They were then expected to wear a head covering in public to show their societal respectability and religiosity. By this woman wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, her head is what? Uncovered. And was usually a big glowing neon sign advertising what she was selling to the rest of the community. So Simon was not only berating Jesus, letting this obvious prostitute have anything to do with him, but calling his following the Jewish law into question. Since this woman was a prostitute, she was considered spiritually unclean. And since she was touching Jesus' feet, who did that also mean was spiritually unclean in their eyes? Jesus. That was the one thing that rabbis and certainly the Pharisees would have tried to avoid at all costs. But instead of the woman's spiritual uncleanliness being transferred to Jesus, he saw this experience as him spiritually transferring something else to her. We see what Jesus' understanding of what was going on in his following story. So let's pick up in verse 40. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. <laughs> Those are dangerous words for Simon to reply to Jesus with, aren't they? But remember, what's Simon's ulterior motive through all of this? To trip Jesus up. He's watching all of this and seeing how scandalous and immoral it is, and he's waiting to see how Jesus gets his way out of this one. Let's see him work his way out of this one. Simon's thinking to himself, man, I had this plan to bring up this small idiosyncrasy in the Jewish law and try to trip up this so-called amazing teacher, but I don't even have to do that. This whole obviously accusable event just came out of nowhere and fell directly into my lap. Let's see him get out of this one. So when Simon replies, say it, teacher, we can very easily picture Simon saying it with a coy smirk on his face. He's thinking to himself, 
gotcha. Just wait till my fellow Pharisees find out about this. I'll probably get a plaque in the synagogue or something. But once again, Jesus defies the odds and responds with irrefutable reasoning. Verse 41. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. This is similar to another parable we covered back in Matthew 18. But these two stories contain different money amounts and vastly different contexts. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells that story to his disciples. Here, Jesus is telling the story directly to Simon the Pharisee. So while these are similar, these are two different stories to two different audiences in two different contexts. In this story this morning, it's a loan shark who lends money to a couple of different guys. One guy owed the loan shark 500 denarii, and the other guy owed him 50 denarii. Again, a denarius was worth one full day of 12 hours worth of work, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's how much a, a denarii was worth. If we take the current New Jersey minimum wage rate of $10 an hour and multiply that by a 12-hour workday with no overtime, that one denarius would be about $120 today. You get, you'd, you'd earn $120 for the day. Multiply that by 500, and the first guy owed this loan shark $60,000. That's a decent amount of money to owe to somebody, isn't it? The second guy owed this loan shark the equivalent of $6,000. A considerable sum, but not anywhere near the $60,000 the first guy owed. As one biblical scholar pointed out, according to Jewish law, debts were supposed to be forgiven after seven years. But the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders figured out a way to get around that by creating a loophole. Because of that, many people who lent others money had a few different options they could take advantage of. The two guys who owed this loan shark these two different amounts of money could have been imprisoned until friends and family paid off their debt for them. They could have, be, they could have become the loan shark's indentured servants, like we've talked about, until they worked off the debt. Or the loan shark could have confiscated a bunch of their belongings to pay the debt. They had, the loan shark had all three of these options at his disposal because of these loopholes the Pharisees had created. According to the additions to the law the, the Pharisees had created, this loan shark could have legally done any one of these three things to these guys to set off their debts to him, and no one would blame him for it, and no one would fault him for it. He would receive no backlash for it. It was just the way it was. And that was the way most loan sharks made sure they got paid. So in other words, what this loan shark ends up doing is completely unheard of. Completely. Verse 42. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Instead of throwing the books at these guys, or even the least or even just doing the least inhumane thing to make sure he got paid, this loan shark calls both of these guys to him and tells them he's forgiving their debt completely right then and there. Nobody did this. Nobody. Nobody did it. That was just crazy. That was just completely unheard of. 
remember, this guy had three different options he could have taken advantage of, and that's what everybody did. But this guy just flat out, out of nowhere, for no reason whatsoever, forgave both of these guys' debts. And as we'll see, that's Jesus' point. No, no earthly reason whatsoever. The grace that this loan shark showed to these guys was unheard of and crazy in human eyes. Because this amount of grace was completely unheard of and crazy, Simon asked, Jesus asks Simon a question which reveals the overall point to his story. Which of these guys loved him more? Now you would expect the question rather to be phrased, which of these guys were more grateful towards him? It's an odd decision on Jesus' part to insert love in the question. These guys just owed this other guy some money, which he forgave. Being extremely grateful towards him, I see, but loving him? It isn't what you would expect, and that's also Jesus' point. In fact, when you look this verse up, the Greek word used there is indeed a variation of agape, or unconditional love. Jesus is partially interpreting this parable in, in this question by inserting love in there. Already, he's connecting the woman who's wiping his feet with her hair, tears, and perfume to the one who for, one forgiven a debt who is showing love in return. He's already connecting it to that woman there. At this point, Simon is thinking, man, I would look like a complete idiot if I answer this simple question without the obvious answer. So that's what he gives in verse 43. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you have judged correctly. See, Jesus already knew how Simon was going to answer. Such an obvious question. He knew how Simon was going to answer. So he responds with, yeah, you're right. Jesus then elaborates on this response with the other bookend of this parable. He motions to the woman and still talking to Simon says, when I entered your house as your supposed guest of honor, you didn't even offer water to wash my feet. It was customary for a servant in a rich person's house to wash the feet of guests, especially honored ones, as Simon most certainly implied Jesus was when he invited him over for dinner. At the very least, water was provided for guests to wash their own feet, but Simon provided neither for Jesus. We already see what's going on in Simon's mind and what he's really thinking about Jesus. It was also customary for the host of a dinner to greet the guests with a cheek kiss of greeting, much like many people still do today. But Simon apparently didn't even do that. Some host Simon was, huh? In complete contrast, that woman had washed Jesus' feet with her tears and perfume, then wiped them off with her hair. And in contrast to Simon, the woman had showered Jesus' feet with kisses. The kissing of Jesus' feet was the ultimate act of showing honor towards someone. It wasn't only because of what this woman was outwardly doing that moved Jesus' heart. It was because Jesus knew that her outward actions were a reflection of what she felt in her heart. 
we can infer from what Jesus says next that this woman's actions were implying that she was repenting of who she was and the sins she knew she had been committing. Jesus explains by saying that her sins, and he clarifies that he knows that her sins are many, have been forgiven through her simple act of repentance. However, someone like Simon, who didn't think he had many sins to forgive, wouldn't understand what this woman was feeling. He just couldn't. He couldn't and he wouldn't. Because she understood the gravity of her sin and the repentance that was crucial to any forgiveness and salvation from her sin, and because she had a sense that Jesus would see it and forgive her, she showed way more love towards Jesus than someone like Simon could even ever hope to understand. See, by this woman even coming to Jesus for forgiveness of her sins, she was making another declaration. She was declaring that not only was Jesus the messianic deliverer of Israel, but because the Jewish people understood that God was the only one to forgive sins, she was declaring her faith in Jesus as God. That's why Jesus tells the woman at the end of chapter 7, your faith in me as God who forgives sins has saved you. You can go now in the spiritual peace that comes from that salvation. You no longer need to fear what awaits the unrepentant. I'm sure Jesus knew that this woman's extreme act of repentance also meant that she was turning away from that former life and would embark on a new path in life. You ever wonder why when you tell someone about Jesus and they repent of their sins and they give their life to him, why different people have different responses to that? Like one person will have a whirlwind of an experience and all these huge life changes start being seen in their life. And another person will be noticeably different but not have this earth-shattering experience. Or you see someone in their adult years have this radical salvation experience, but you were a kid when you gave your life to Jesus and you didn't feel a whole lot. What's going on there? Here's the answer right here. Those who have a lot to be forgiven for by God, not always, but usually have a lot more visible and radical of a life transformation from whom they once were. And their faith takes off like a raging fire. And so they're the ones who have all these crazy testimonies to share. Those who may not have as much life experience and therefore don't have as much to be forgiven by God, like a child, usually does not have as radical of a transformation or a salvation experience. And that's okay. Both ways are okay. You want to know why? God saves who he wants to when he wants to. That's completely up to him and his plan. We can't begrudge him for that, and we can't question him for that. We just trust him with all of it. If you gave your life to Jesus when you were a kid and you followed him for the most part after that, be grateful that God protected you from a life of, that brought heartbreak and destruction. If you gave your life to Jesus when you were an adult, 
but try to be a good person and avoided a lot of destructive de uh, decisions. Be grateful that God still saved you from the fate of hell, that good people that, uh, that, uh, who don't ever accept Jesus as their Savior and King are still destined for. And if you gave your life to Jesus when you were an adult, and sadly you had to go through a lot of pain, heartbreak, and destruction before you did, be grateful that God has saved you from that and that he's in the process of redeeming all of that, redeeming everything in your past. That last category is what this woman fit into. And you might be sitting here watching online later and thinking how that woman felt with the weight of her sins crushing her and her coming to Jesus for forgiveness and her weeping out of her love for her new, her new Savior and feeling that tremendous freedom of salvation because of that repentance, that's me. That's exactly how I felt. And no, you're in good company. If you've never come to the place this woman did, where you have come to Jesus in prayer and recognized how big of a problem your sin truly is and how it separates you from God and repented of it and asked for forgiveness of it and received the freedom of that salvation, come to him now. Come to him and do that and receive the greatest gift you could ever hope to receive. You can finally be freed from the shackles of your past. You can find redemption in the horrors of past trauma. That woman left that Pharisee's house a completely different person than when she walked in. She no longer was just that prostitute. She no longer was the lowest rung in society, used and abused and tossed aside like a piece of garbage. She was now a child of God. She now had overwhelming and lasting joy. She now had a fulfilling purpose. She now had life, both then and an and eternal home waiting for her. Imagine the testimony that woman had after she left. Imagine the changes others would have seen in her. Those of you who were also forgiven of a lot, what, what are others seeing in your life right now? You have a tremendous responsibility now to let others know how different you are now and how they can have that too. Don't hide your light under a basket, as Jesus says, but put it on a pedestal for everyone to see. You're going to look crazy, just like the woman looked in Simon's house, but let them think you're crazy. You're going to look crazy because a life freed by the power of Jesus' forgiveness makes no sense to this world. It doesn't even look right to so-called religious people. So live it out and live it out loud. Make people see. Make people wonder. Make people want it too. And when they ask, answer with the boldness of the Holy Spirit inside of you. I once was lost but now I am found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once had no clue what my life was supposed to be all about, but now I have the power and the purpose and the plan of God over my life. I once feared death, 
But now I can't wait for Jesus to call me home. I once was consumed by worries and anxieties and addictions and destructive behavior. But now I have God's protection over my life and his plan dictating what happens to me. So I have no fear and nothing except the goodness of God has any power over me. Whoever you are, don't live in the past anymore. Live the joyous life that God has for you now. Live in the victory over fear, worry, past trauma, addiction, and sin. Because you are more than a conqueror through him who loves you. Live in the power and boldness of the one who saved you and is redeeming you and has commissioned you to take the power of that message to this dark and hurting world. Live in the light of God's goodness towards you and live in love towards the one who reached out to you and gave you hope by loving those he's also created and is also reaching out to with the same love. You have been saved. You have been freed. You have been given hope. You have been given lasting joy and peace. You have been given overwhelming victory. You have been, been forgiven. Let's all live like that. And let's all live in such a way that others just cannot help but think, I gotta have that. I gotta have that. I gotta have what they have. And like Jesus to Simon the Pharisee, let us too reply, I've got something to tell you. I've got Jesus in my life. That's all this is. All you're seeing is that I've got Jesus in my life. And guess what? You can have him too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this parable that gives us so much hope. Lord Jesus, you reached out to those who had no hope, absolutely no hope in this world. And you gave them new life. You gave them forgiveness, and you gave them hope, and you gave them peace, and you gave them transformation. You gave them the hope of knowing they have an eternal home to look forward to. And that's the same for all of us sitting here or watching online later. Lord, thank you. Let us never take that for granted. And let us live it out and live it out loud. Let us look crazy. Let us look bold. So that others will be left wondering, what is it about that person? What do they have that I don't have? And we can confidently say, all it is is Jesus. All it is is repentance, finding his forgiveness and having him. That's all this is. All this joy and hope and peace comes directly from him and from his Holy Spirit working in me. Lord Jesus, as we go out from this place today, we're going out into a dark and a confused and a hurting world. It's been a rough week for a lot of people. Lord, you never change. You offer us the hope and stability and peace. That, we, that that's all we can ever desire. So let us go forward with boldness and let us declare the name of Jesus in this world. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please.